Hello, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, Campaign Magazine's weekly conversation about everything happening in advertising, marketing, and media. I'm Brittany Kiefer, Creativity and Culture Editor. I'm Jenna Charles, the Deputy Editor. And I'm Maria Yu, Intelligence Editor. So this is actually Gemma and Maria's first time on the podcast, so it's great to have you both here. So we are recording this on May 25th, which is the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Of course, as you know, George Floyd was the African-American man who was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis. His death sparked a wave of Black Lives Matter protests around the world, and it had a ripple effect on many parts of society, including closer to home in the advertising industry. Just over a week after Floyd's murder, more than 200 advertising and media leaders in the UK signed an open letter pledging to address racism and inequality across the industry. They wrote, What we do and who we represent has a profound impact on culture yet systemic inequality continues in our industry. Now a year has passed, and as our editor-in-chief Gideon wrote recently, the first anniversary of Floyd's death will be a moment of reckoning because companies will need to demonstrate the progress they have made in the previous 12 months. So let's go back a year to that letter. At the time, not everyone welcomed that statement. Shanice Mears, co-founder of The Elephant Room, summed up a lot of people's skepticism about that statement when she said, I don't want to see 200 names of industry leaders who pledge for better or 10 ways of how to do it. How convenient. I want to see your company policy, your actionable hiring methods, your retention scheme, your well-being offering, and your gender and Black, Asian, and minority ethnic pay gap figures. Real commitment to breaking the system is uncomfortable, hard, and challenging. So Gemma, let's start with that moment. With the Black Lives Matter protests happening around the world and then the industry's big open letter, what kind of immediate responses did you observe at the time from the industry? Well, I think when the industry came together and signed the letter, you know, they were pretty quick. So we've got to give them some credit for coming together in the numbers that they did and signing the letter and getting it out with the pledges. Um, But to be quite honest, there was also a bit of scepticism that came in. And Shanice actually sort of sort of caught that, really, because and again, I'm going to quote her. But what she said was, why is it actually taken a man to die to decide that black talent is worth invested in? So, you you know, and this seems to sort of capture the mood of a lot of people. And actually, I think her piece went on to be one of our best read opinion pieces. And on social media, particularly on LinkedIn, there were a lot of um, people coming in and actually saying, I agree. What, why did it? Why did it take this? I think people are people were feeling exhausted. People had kind of heard some of this stuff before. So there was just this kind of scepticism about whether anything would change. So it was, it you know, there were a mix of emotions at that time. But what was clear is that, that people expected something to change from there on in. Yeah. So, Maria, you've been with Campaign for a long time, often behind the scenes, even though this is your first time on the podcast, you've edited so many of our stories so you've been observing the industry for a while. Do you think that there was something different about this moment and how industry leaders reacted to it? 
I think there's definitely more of a shift towards actionable things. I would say a few years ago, even though diversity has already been a topic for some time, there was definitely chat on more generally, oh, let's get more diverse people into the industry because we value diverse talent. But now it's more about um, exactly what you're doing to make this happen. So I think Shanice's column does get at that. She's saying basically, don't sign a letter, do something. Hmm. Yeah. Gemma, do you agree? Did this at the time, do you remember, does did that feel like a real moment of change? Or were you yourself kind of skeptical of here we go again, here's another pledge or another letter? I think it did feel slightly different seeing quite quite so many um agency leaders coalesce. And once you've actually put your name to something then you will you can be followed up you can be pushed you can you you have to be accountable so i do think that it it was a moment and i but i do also think that people had every right to be skeptical and and quite frankly cynical about whether things would would change at that moment mm. So I want to talk about some of the specific implications for the advertising industry, because I think, you know, at first glance, you would think, what does Black Lives Matter and George Floyd's murder have to do with this industry? Like, but I think it's affected different industries in different ways. So one, one obvious one is just what we see on screen and the ads that people are actually making. Um, I wrote a feature last year about casting and how casting had become more diverse and was starting to become more inclusive and in the in the types of roles that they would cast. But one of the big problems that that piece raised was that even though we've seen more diversity on screen recently, we're not seeing as much of that diversity behind the scenes, behind the camera. Um, on that, Gemma, like, what have you observed in the ads that you've seen? You've kind of been observing the marketing industry for years, and like, you probably remember a time when it was very rare to see a black family on screen. Yeah, I mean, it's as a black person, I have to say that when I do see advertising, you know, with black families, it's just it really is heartwarming for me. When when I think to back to my childhood, you you just didn't. It was it was basically sort of blue eyed, uh, blonde people in in ads, and that was the representation. Mm. So you know, just kind of feeling normalizing it is just kind of just brilliant, really. But you know, to your to your point, um, the next real step is how we then go behind the camera and make sure that people making decisions, people doing uh, the casting, people, you know, all of the stuff that's behind the scenes, making sure that that is, that is diverse as well, because that's, that's where you, we don't necessarily have, have we haven't necessarily seen, seen change. Hmm. And that's where I think we'll see real change, because one of the dangers of having maybe a black 
family or character on screen, but no one behind the scenes who is black or from that background is that sometimes those people can be cast in really stereotypical roles or that, you know, their ethnicity becomes like core to the story that they're telling. And that doesn't always need to be the case. Um, One example that I've talked about recently that wasn't about um, a, a black family, but there was a British Asian family who starred in the recent FIFA ad. And I think that was such a good example, as I've talked on this podcast for a long time, about, um, you know, there was a diverse team making the campaign. And so the campaign itself felt really authentic and true to that culture. But those examples still feel really rare to me. Maria, I, I mean, you watch a lot of ads. You're a bit of an ad geek, I feel like you you remember some from a long time ago. Do you think that it actually does feel different in the past year, the kind of ads we're seeing and the diversity on screen? No, absolutely. I think, as Gemma was saying, it's, it is really heartwarming to see more families of all different kinds, not just necessarily Black families, but for me to to see families of kind of Oriental, Southeast Asian families, that's really exciting and fun to see on screen because you never used to see that before. So I hope that is something that continues and it's not just a sort of reaction to what's been happening in the past year. Yeah, and we're talking about this because yes, it's, you know, it's important to the advertising industry, it's relevant, but it has such an effect on people watching it. Like we all remember what we saw on our screens growing up, whether it like whether we consciously store that away or not, what you see represented really matters. And Gemma, maybe you can speak to that. Like you touched on it earlier that this is why it's important to talk about this and why this was one of the conversations that arose from it, right? Advertising is part of culture. Um you know, so again, if I take it back to me being a child sat there watching TV in the 80s, you know, not seeing myself reflected in ads is something that was not on. So when I think about when I think about my daughter, for instance, being able to, you know, when she just sat there watching TV, she'll see herself reflected. So it does make it does make a difference. The shift is is real and And it's a positive thing. Mm, Absolutely. Well, another conversation that I think has started probably before the Black Lives Matter movement, but that was really propelled during this past year is one about the actual talent within the advertising industry. So this made me think about a profile I wrote of the photographer Misan Harriman. So he actually kind of came into the spotlight because he was photographing the Black Lives Matter protests in London at the time. And he later became the first black man to shoot a British Vogue cover in the magazine's entire history. And when I spoke to him at the time, he said, this is actually astonishing that I'm the first black man to shoot a Vogue cover. Like, he named all these photographers who were black, who were really talented, who had come before him, who could have just as easily shot a powerful cover. And something that I think is really important about his story is that he has a lot of qualities that I think would have been overlooked traditionally by the industry. So not only is he black, but he was a dropout from university. 
he's dyslexic, and he got a late start to his creative work. He didn't actually study or like start photography until much later. And as he said to me, I didn't think I would be hired by anyone, but he has so much to add and he's gone on to do these amazing things even just since that interview. And I think, you know, I remember ending the piece asking like how many other talents like him are out there that are just being overlooked. And this is a question that I hope a lot of agencies and media companies are asking themselves since the protests last year. Gemma, do you think that Shanice's letter, for example, did that kind of come from a place of this talent being overlooked or not given the opportunities that they deserve for many years. Absolutely. And, you know, just today, actually, I got an email from someone that I've known for quite a long time, a, a marketing director who's gone agency side. And he was talking about how um, their agency has taken on an ex-offender and how, well, they took the ex-offender on quite a few years ago and actually now he's the head of research at the agency. Mm. But that's the sort of person that wouldn't have been given a chance normally. Now, he was saying that, you know, because he's contacting me on 25th of May, which is obviously this big anniversary day, saying, what if, you know, 10 agencies did something like that, something that's really powerful and life-changing, you know, what kind of changes could could we see what kind of effect could that have on the industry if people were just willing to give people a chance so this is sorry this ex-offender is it's it's a black guy so just bringing in this diversity like in in different ways and just like Maria was saying these actionable actual things it's just what the industry really needs to be thinking about and of course it's been very glaring for a long time that the ad industry's leadership and its staff do not represent the country the way, you know, the country they are trying to serve. Um, I'm just thinking, Maria, like recently you've worked on our school reports and that's something we look at is the figures and of, you know, not only um, ethnic diversity, but gender diversity. And for so long, the leadership of the industry has been so homogenous. What did you observe this year in working on those reports? Did you see any kind of change in a positive direction? I would say in the past few years since the IPA has been compiling these diversity stats, I think as a general rule, the industry as a whole has not managed to hit those targets year after year, which is disappointing. But I would say from this year's school reports, the positive thing about it is Despite sort of seeing still predominantly white management lineups, we are seeing a lot of BAME entrants. So agencies that were still hiring in a really tough year, um, the percentage they quoted for, you know, percentage of employees who are of a BAME background, they were very high and higher probably than we would have expected. So I think that's definitely progress, even if at the higher end, we're still not seeing the sort of level of representation we would like. Certainly at the junior end, it's happening. And of course, these things take time. So I'm positive in that at least it's happening at one end. So it will filter up at some point. 
Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, But that brings us to another point, which is pay. (laughs) And um, we've talked about the gender pay gap for a long time, but only more recently have we been talking about the ethnic pay gap. Gemma, I know this was a big part of something you discovered when you started a big project for campaign last year called the BLM Adland Audit. So first, can you explain what that project was, how it came about, and then what did you observe in working on this? Yeah, so the BLM Adland Audit was sort of came about from uh, me saying, I wonder what agencies are actually really, again, going back to this whole actionable um, insights thing, what are agencies actually doing um, in response to this BLM movement that's just happened um, in the summer? So we just asked a few questions. We asked them to detail their diversity policies um, that are aimed at sort of aiding race equality, race equity, And we asked a few other questions like uh, if they could provide their ethnicity pay gap. And what we found, so we asked about 40 agencies, um, most of the the sort of biggest agencies. And what we found was that only one of them, uh, Lucky Generals, was able to uh, provide an ethnicity pay gap uh, figure. So you had some of them were like on their way to doing it. Uh, Some of them hadn't thought about it at all so they were sort of in different stages but actually there was only one that had the figure at that point so you know that was that was um interesting because when we uh did our school reports which admittedly isn't like the the exact same kind of sample but there were quite a few more that actually um had managed to get that data by the time we were doing our school reports so I guess it indicated a sort of trajectory towards actually getting better at this. I mean, the thing is with ethnicity pay gap reporting is that it's not mandatory. Uh-huh. Um, so not like the gender pay gap where if you're a company over a certain size, you have to do it. But where we are at the moment, it's probably the morally right thing to do mm-hmm. um, in terms of uh, the environment on transparency and accountability. So, um, so I mean, yeah, that's, I guess you could say that that's, that's progress in the right direction. Yeah. So what are some of the more recent initiatives that have come about a year later? Do you think that this is something that's still top of mind for people, Gemma? Yeah, well, I hope it is. Obviously, the anniversary brings it top of mind. So, you know, you've got um, recently there's one called BRIM, which stands for Black Representation in Marketing. So that's a sort of coalition of brands such as Shell, TUI, Unilever, PepsiCo, then agencies like VCP, uh, Wonderman Thompson, Drug of Five London, um, and Facebook's part of it as well. So what they've got a very sort of simple... Um, aim which is to sort of drive change and improve representation of for black people both in front of and behind the camera so you know they've they've had they they only just started i think uh they launched um earlier uh this month 
So their aim is really to kind of drive through these changes. And they, they've said that they're in it for the long term as well. So that will be, again, interesting to, to monitor. And then, But then you've also got, like, little, nice kind of little schemes coming up. Like there was one that um, I heard about the other day by a woman called Maria McDowell. And she's doing something called lollipop mentoring. So that's uh, free um, mentoring for black women working in the creative industries. Um, so she just brings, um, they, not not completely junior people, so kind of mid mid people trying to get them to move through the ranks. And so she will bring mentors to them. So she's always looking for people to volunteer, by the way, if anybody's listening who wants to volunteer to be a mentor. And then they also do roundtables where the, the women themselves can get together in a safe space and discuss issues they've got. So, you know, and I mean, there'll be like loads that I don't know about as well. So it's good that that perhaps the the kind of the moment that we had last year is not a moment. It's actually a movement. Yeah. And it's sparking all these groups, whether they're big ones or small ones. It's sparking these these groups to to form and actually, you know, do something, hopefully. Absolutely. I've noticed so many groups and initiatives like this over the past year. Really recently, there is one called Black Strat, started by a strategist called Io, who works at Mother. And that started as just a WhatsApp group, him and, you know, some of his mates on WhatsApp. It's grown to over 100 strategists who are black, who work in the industry, who want to, you know, show that strategy can be for anyone. It's not just this elitist profession. And they're starting a mentorship scheme. They have talks that they're hosting. So that's just one example. And that was quite recently. I know BBC Creative, the BBC's in-house agency, they have a um, creative education program, not just for black students, but to bring more diversity into the industry. And there's just so many like that that are bubbling away. And I think that's a real positive sign of change. Um, But I think it's interesting to look at the backdrop of the country that, you know, this industry is working in. And at the same time, we're going through a global pandemic. We're going through Brexit. Um, Maria, I know this is something that we kind of chatted about before that you're, you've noticed a real um, shift in the mood of the country, which is interesting to think about as people who are creating ads for this country. What do you think of that? So I think, you know, in the past few years it's not just the past year because of George Floyd but certainly related to Brexit related to Trump I just think our politics has got a lot more divisive Um, so despite all the progress on one hand on racial justice it feels like there's a an increasingly vocal contingent who criticize the movement as well at the same time so the the one example that sort of really stuck with me was um, the Argos ad in the summer that had a black family in the garden and it was just showcasing camping equipment, that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, people people got very upset about the fact that it's a completely black family. The strange argument seems to be that because this ad features only black people, Argos is therefore only advertising its goods to black people. No one has ever said that when it's the other way around. So it goes back to this idea of white being the default. So if white people are in an ad, that's normal. Anything else is somehow a political statement. 
which is to me is just completely mind blowing. And you know, Sainsbury's also, as we know, had the same issue with this Christmas ad, which also had black families in it. Um, and on the less of a direct advertising related, we also know, you know, that ITV had that diversity dance performance, which attracted like basically a record number of complaints, even though it's a dance performance. Um, and also there's an ongoing issue with football fans booing players when they take the knee at the start of the match. All of this shows, while on the one hand there is progress, certainly I feel like on the other side of the argument, people are getting more vocal about it as well. I remember that backlash to Sainsbury specifically, and I find that so discouraging because on you know with that ad, that was actually one of my favorite ads of last year, and it was so emotional and subtle and well done, and it just told a story that what that could be universal to anyone. It was about a family who was separated over the holiday period, which a lot of us were during COVID, and it, it wasn't a political statement. It was a story that we can all relate to. Um, and I just, I mean, Gemma, what do you think about that? Like being, if you were creative making ads in this kind of divisive environment, should you bear that in mind or should you just dismiss it? I hope that you would be able to dismiss it. Um, that's not to say that you wouldn't feel it and who wouldn't feel it if you're being seen all this kind of vile stuff on social media but what what I would say is is that these people their their voices are loud, but they are in a minority, and I mean it's the dark side of social media, isn't it? That's allowed people's <laughs> people's voices who perhaps we wouldn't want to hear. We, they they've now got a platform, unfortunately, to make these kind of awful put their these awful views out there. Mm. But I would just say to any creative that's that's worked on a campaign that's had this kind of backlash just just to keep going because there's there's a huge huge perhaps silent majority uh that is very very supportive and modern and progressive and you know just sees a good ad and doesn't see doesn't see oh that's a black family that's a white family just sees a good ad that they that they enjoy absolutely so it's the one year anniversary. I want to know, how are you both feeling about this moment? Gemma, you wrote a column about this, actually. Are you, are you feeling optimistic? Do you think that real change is happening? I think it's, I would, I would categorize my feelings as cautiously optimistic. And I think that applies, I'm applying that to both Adland and sort of society as a whole, in that to me, those protests that went around the world that sort of galvanised people that then they that then flowed into you know the boardrooms flowed into corporate spaces as well. I just feel that that energy that will not just disappear. I just mm. don't think that that will. That can you can't shut the lid on that now. Now I know that some people might be saying, "Oh, oh, can't we move on? Oh, I've heard it all. It's been going for a year now. Okay, we've done this for a year now, or whatever." But actually, 
it's almost like now is the time that the hard work starts because this is exactly exactly the time when some people are feeling that oh we've we've done it now is exactly the time when the hard work starts and we we need to push push this along more so but i'm optimistic that there's i think so many people signed up to pledges said they were going going to do stuff said they were going to change stuff so many people in power but i don't think that other people will let up or stop talking about this will stop monitoring them will stop will stop talking about these issues so i'm i'm optimistic that the energy is still there and it will be used to drive change and make sure that um things improve in the future we actually published a column today by trevor robinson the founder of quiet storm and he raised a really good point that I've been thinking about too. The headline is the momentum created by BLM is at risk of fading away. Maria, what did you think of his points and how are you feeling about this anniversary and where the industry is at at the moment? I would say overall, I am optimistic. Um, so for example, from the school reports figures, we can see there are more people of different backgrounds and ethnic minorities entering the advertising industry. So I think that's definitely progress on that front. And I think the past year has certainly, for a lot of white people, it has given them this sudden, they, they want to, for the first time, really engage with this topic, understanding now that it's not Racial justice is not just an issue for people who are not white. Mm. It's for everybody. And, you know, I have friends who have actually sort of friends I've known for like 15, 20 years mm. who actually this year for the first time ever during our friendship asked me if, if I've ever had any experience of kind of harassment or abuse based on my race. So I think it shows people are engaging with it in a way that perhaps they weren't before. But I was slightly disheartened by Trevor's column, uh, especially the bit where he talks about how, you know, at, at the start of it, a lot of brands and people got in touch with him to say, we really mm. want to get involved and create not hate. And he's saying re more recently, those voices have gone quiet. And I guess part of our role, uh, well, for everybody, it's to not let those voices go quiet and it's to keep pushing because it's, it's not an issue that's going to go away and it definitely will go away if we decide that we are going to stop talking about it. I just want to read an excerpt from Trevor's piece to wrap up this episode. He said, I would like to believe that we're all more enlightened, but there remains a complacency in this society that has not been addressed for a long time. And so we need to keep pushing. Looking forward to the year ahead, I will not be backing down. We're going to keep the dialogue going. Hopefully, I won't come across as that boring, chippy black guy. There are lots of people for whom discrimination is an everyday reality. I'm still black. That ain't changing. So we need to keep having these conversations. I'm hoping we'll look back at this time and marvel at the fact that this was our reality. So thank you, Trevor, for writing for us. And thank you, Maria and Gemma, for joining me to talk about this issue. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the campaign podcast. Thank you again to Maria and Gemma. This episode was edited by Lindsay Riley. 
You can read more news and analysis by Campaign Magazine at campaignlive.co.uk. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe or leave us a review. Goodbye and hope you can join us again next week.